Turn, if you will, with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, where we will be this morning. And for the handful of you that I have not had the blessing of meeting yet, as I've been at this church for the last five years, I'm Timothy Martin, and I've been on staff for about the last uh, nine, ten months as a pastoral resident, which means I'm pretty much a full-time intern um, or a bit of a professional Swiss army knife as I do different things across the church. Um, Kind of my main realm of responsibility is helping with the middle schoolers and then a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff um, after that. And everything I've been asked to do, whether it's small or big or somewhere in between, really, honestly and truly has been very easy for me to do uh, because I love you guys. Um, This church has been a home to me in every meaning of that word for the last few years, and it's been a privilege to serve in a fuller capacity for the last nine months. Um, There's been times of laughter, singing, family meals, discipline, correction, teaching moments, and deep personal relationships. So while Heritage Bible Church is not perfect, it will always be my first memory of what a truly healthy church looks like. And I understand now from Paul's perspective uh, what it will be like to always keep a certain body in remembrance and prayer for them. So I will be praying for you guys as I continue my residency here, and I would appreciate your prayers. I've been able to be here on your support, both through prayer and financial gifts, and it's been a blessing. Now, let's give our hearts and minds and full attention to God's Word. and We will read it together. Hebrews 12, starting actually in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I'll drop down to verse 18. For you have not come to that what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg to hear no further messages to be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word the blood of Abel. The word of the Lord. Have you ever, maybe, not that you would ever make mistakes, but if you did, misidentify a relationship that you were in? So just this past week, uh, a friend sent me a screenshot of a freshman he was supervising who uh, had mastered the art of diplomacy with teachers. Uh, Needing an assignment corrected, he began his eloquent appeal with a, hey, Dave, to which the professor responded, excuse me, what? Um, and he quickly fixed it by saying, hey, Dr. Dave. Um, he misidentified how close he was with that professor and forgot his place. Maybe you've made a similar faux pas and misidentified one of your bosses for one of your buddies or uh, teenagers and college students in particular misidentified uh, that friend for someone as more than a friend. I'm sorry. Um, you thought they really liked you. You were wrong. Sometimes people need to be told to know their place because they've misidentified the relationship that they're in. And in our culture, when we use that expression, know your place, it's usually because you've assumed that you're in better with someone than you actually are. But what God wants you to know through the reading of his word this morning and through the sermon is that you need to know your place. But in this context, you need to know your place because you if you are in Christ, may actually be in better than you think that you are. God wants you to know that all that we gather to do, worship, fellowship, listening to his word, are the most important things you could ever do, and you are in the most important place you could ever be. They are the most real things that you could ever experience. The most real things you could ever experience is what we have in this room. 
So you've noticed that I've included verses 12 and 13, and this is meant to be an encouragement, as we heard last week. And last week, we were told to live our lives in the pursuit of grace and to show our pursuit of grace by committing ourselves to pursuing purity and holiness and also peace with each other. So that was kind of the what. That is the what of this encouragement and this grace. But this week, we're going to be looking at the how and the why behind this encouragement. And has everything to do with knowing your place. But we're going to begin by exploring where you are not. Where you are not. You are not gathered this morning at Mount Sinai. Now, this is the imagery that we were given. And to a people escaping 400 years of slavery under Egypt, seeing Mount Sinai off in the distance and knowing that's where God would meet with them and they would camp must have been like a beacon of hope. And as we heard in our call of worship, the promise that God gave at Sinai was a really good one, that people would become his treasure, that he would turn them into a mighty kingdom, kings that acted like priests, representing God before other people and having a special communion with him. But they would also be um, sanctified. He would make them holy. He would pluck them out of life in Egypt, which would have been full of idolatry and sexual immorality, and he would sanctify them. Perhaps you've heard the expression that hurt people hurt people. Well, God said that he could go beyond that with the people of Israel who had been slaves and turn them into something truly pure and holy. 400 years of generational servitude under Pharaoh would not prevent him from purifying his people and turning them into treasures. So what could be better than that. It sounds like a really good deal. So furthermore, we're supposed to be encouraged, if you look at the beginning of verse 18, by the fact that we're not there. Look at the text. Uh, Verse 18, I think, is subordinate to verse 12. Um, Some of you have heard, you know, when you see a therefore in a text, you ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? Um, And there's a way of preaching that gets too focused on grammar, but I think it's important. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. And last week, we were given the first reason. This week, we're given the second reason. For you have not come to Mount Sinai. So, not being at Mount Sinai, this place where this promise was given, is meant to be an encouragement for you to lift your drooping hands and straighten weak knees to run the race. So, Why is that? What is better than this monument of grace that is Mount Sinai? Well, it's true that it's better, and I'd like to draw this to your attention by saying that we are, first of all, not worshiping under shadows. We're not worshiping in shadows. If you look at verse 18, it says, For you have not come to what may be touched. So we know that this isn't a reference to the mountain itself because a few verses later, we're told that um, they were not supposed to touch the mountain. And now they're being told that, we're being told that there's a good, it's a good thing that we can't touch something. So it's not the physical mountain they're talking about. So what is it that we are not able to put our hands on that they could? In Hebrews 7, we're told that the nation of Israel dealt in shadows. They touched shadows. And this biblical language of shadows is used to refer to lesser realities. Not quite fake, but not the real deal either. And according to the book of Hebrews, the entire worship system of the nation of Israel was nothing but a shadow compared to what we have in Christ. But put yourself into the mind of this original audience and those that would have been hearing this, that to lose all that they could touch and smell and experience with their bodies was in fact the best thing for them. Worship under the old covenant was a very physical thing. It had distinct smells, textures, and sounds, cattle's lowing, the scent of the iron in the air as their blood was spilled. Uh, there was a day-long background noise of trumpets being blown and harps being played. And there was a priest that you saw regularly, face-to-face, who told you, you are forgiven. There was a bath you could get into, 
every time that your conscience became impure and you were guaranteed by going into his bath and coming out of his bath that you were pure now in God's sight. You could watch the lamb that you had brought to be killed, cooked. And in many of the rituals, as you might remember from our series in Leviticus, you were even instructed to eat the meat of the lamb after it had been killed as a sign of God's peace offering to you. And it was a physical sign that your sin had been dealt with completely. And maybe you're even thinking to yourself, man, I kind of wish I had that type of physical assurance that when I sinned and my conscience was set against me, when I feel guilty, there was a way I could touch and feel and smell proof of my forgiveness. That's exactly what they would have been thinking here. But my friends, that, that lamb that they would have been able to touch and feel and smell was good for a moment. And then you needed another And the presence of God was enjoyed really just by a select few priests. The rituals of purification also reminded you that your sin was always making you grimy and dirty and impure. But if you've received Jesus Christ himself, that is a sacrifice good forever. A more perfect empowerment comes through the Holy Spirit. He's a seal of a guaranteed future. And a singular baptism, only needing to be baptized once, reminds us of a purified conscience forever. And we have a direct access to God as a whole church, not a select few of us. It is so good to be where we are. So does the invisible nature of Christianity ever bother you? Sometimes it almost feels like we're in this, because we're a people of a book. It's like we're stuck in a literary endeavor that uh, Christianity is this big bubble of analogies and metaphors and similes. Jesus is like a king. It's like we're priest of God. It's like we're royalty in Christ. It's like God's my father. It's like the Holy Spirit is a friend. It's like I have a blood sacrifice who died for me. We don't really live in a land of metaphors and similes. The Bible declares this to you as your reality. Jesus is your king. You are a priest before God. Whereas Exodus teaches us that the people of Israel could become treasured possessions and priests and kings and holy if they obeyed everything without fail. You are given, according to 1 Peter 2.9, that you are are priests and kings, and you are a spiritual kingdom called out of darkness into the marvelous light of our God. God is a father whose fatherhood is more real than your flesh and blood father. The Holy Spirit is a better friend than any companion you've had. And Jesus is a king more real than Charles III. Your savior is more real than any of your attempts to save yourself. We have a really good thing, and we are in a really good place. We have the substance. We don't have shadows. We have the better, truer reality. And it's manifest in this world through the church. Look around the room. Like, really, look around the room. Like, entertain me for a second. Swivel your heads, look at other people. This is what the word of God calls better than all the rituals of the old covenant. We're not worshiping in shadows, but in the light of God as a people gathered and declared to truly be his. So it's good news that we lack something to touch because of a spiritual reality God has declared for us in the new covenant is really good news. So what else is good news? We've not come to Mount Sinai, so we also are not living under the law's curse. Verses 19 and 20. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not to endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Now, the voice of God is something that All cultures in all times crave one way or another. The argument of Hebrews opens by reminding us and appealing to this human desire. 
that Jesus Christ is the sure and better word, more sure than the word passed down through angels and prophets. And yet we still all want to hear God's voice, even after hearing that. Or so at least we think we do. Uh, When the people of Israel heard God's voice, it came as a threat, or rather with a threat. Before Sinai, the last time that God had spoken to this percentage of his creation was in the garden, when there were two of us. Um, And even then, the word of God came not only in the cool of the evening to fellowship with Adam and Eve, but also really to conduct the first counseling session and to bring them out of hiding, to call them to confess and to repent. And then after that, the longest series of words we get from God is the curse uttered upon man, the woman, and the snake. So how does all that work? How should we think about the word of God, the voice of God coming to us? Our God is holy, and the Bible says God is love. These are never at odds with each other, so our God is a God of holy love. And his holy love comes to us through good news and through bad news. And when it is good news, it doesn't compromise that he's holy. And when it's bad news, it doesn't compromise that it is love. So when we look at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, let's think about it this way. When God gave the law, he gave a good thing to us that contained bad news. Looking back at verse 18, you can see the way that there is a mood being set. Dark clouds, smoke, flame, a whirlwind. In verse 19, you can see a a tone being set through loud trumpets and a voice that no one wants to hear. And in verse 20, it culminates, it builds to a threat of death for any that transgress the holiness of God. And you can take this threat against man or animal to be a trendsetter, for the rest of the law, the rest of the package that we're going to receive. It will contain many promises of blessing, but also many severe consequences. And for any that disobey. There's a whole chapter in Deuteronomy set aside to the curses that will fall on those who break them. It's a tricky contract. And I think almost all of us have signed a EULA before. It's E-U-L-A, end-user license agreement, if you've ever used a computer or a phone, is that long block of text that you scroll through, hit agree at the end without reading any of it, and then you get to play your game, use your computer. Um, If you own an iPhone or an Apple device, uh, did you know that you are prohibited from operating, supporting, or owning nuclear weaponry? That's in the EULA. That is in there, and uh, it was kind of put in as a joke because so few people read it, but you could have your iPhone turn off if you ever end up owning a nuke. Um, I own an Android, so I'm safe. Um, and the law isn't that different. When we lifted our voice as a congregation this morning and said, we will do all that you have commanded of us, we signed ourselves away to a good thing with very bad consequences for disobedience. So let me list a couple of ways that the law is good. First, the law is good because it shows us God. We know who God is through the content of his holy love in the law. Second, the law is good because it's a teacher. It instructs us on how to live our lives and how to love our neighbor. We would not know how to do that according to our nature. We tend to uh, run from God. We tend to find ways to harm our neighbors, even if we justify it in our mind. And third, the law is good because it's true. The law offers eternal life. That's what Jesus says of a rich young ruler, that if you can keep it perfectly, you can have eternal life. The law also offers justice, the punishment for every crime met with its perfect retribution. Our courts get things wrong. The law of God does not get anything wrong. It was a good thing because it offers us justice. And this good thing brings us bad news. Here's the bad news. You have violated the contract. You signed the EULA and you broke it. 
You've broken your promise to keep every commandment. You will not receive eternal life, but instead eternal punishment. The book of Romans and Galatians emphasize that the fruit that the law ultimately brings forth is death. The law is a writ of execution, and your name is on that writ as a lawbreaker. The logic of Romans 1 and 2 would show us that this isn't just the Jews gathered at Sinai, but by the testimony of nature and the testimony of um, just our conscience, all of us under the law were held responsible and found guilty. So to the Christian hearing me this morning, let that be a huge encouragement that this is not what you have come to. And this is not what you are under. You can claim Psalm 119 with all that zeal and love for God's law because you have the Holy Spirit and grace to begin obeying it as a child learning a new way to live. Uh, But for those of you that are Christians and not under the law, this can also be a sobering reminder. We're not the good guys. We're the bad guys. God revealed love and holiness, and we were so wicked that it warranted our death. When we came in contact with God, just as Moses begging to be hidden in the cleft of a rock, Moses, one of the most righteous men to ever live, had to be hidden from the goodness of God because it would have brought about his death. So let's walk humbly because of that. And now, with that reminder, let's return to the original question I asked at the beginning of the section. Is it a good thing to hear the voice of God? Sometimes it utters curses, and sometimes those curses strike deep fear into our hearts. That's good that we are not at Sinai. We are not listening to fearful words. So if you are in Christ, you have a better position than Moses, who lived under fear. Truthfully, much of his life could be marked by fear and trembling, as much as we think of him as this epic figure from, you know, patriarchal past of before there was a church, before there was Israel. He was the model, obedient servant. And yet, he was afraid and running after killing an Egyptian. He was afraid when encountering God as a burning bush. He was afraid to encounter God, as I've said before, He was afraid of how strong God's retribution would be when Israel built golden calves. And all of that is rightfully so, as he had encountered a holy God, and as one who bore the weight of mediating that old covenant, he knew how heavy the law was intimately. There is a distinction, however, between fearing God as an enemy and fearing God as his son. We, to this day as Christians, are called to fear God as his children. Romans 3.18 goes so far as to say that if you lack fear of God, that's the right type of soil for a life of uh, apostasy and ungodly living to come out of. So a fear of God remains for you and me. And if you want a good example of how Christians ought to respond in fear, then you really don't need to look farther in Daniel 9, which we recited together this morning, of responding to God's holiness as someone who has been pardoned. But for the Christian, we do not hear fearful words that call for our death. Fear of death has been abolished. I already covered that in Hebrews. In Christ, we are free from the fear of death that kills the body because we've been offered the resurrection. We're free from the fear of death that kills the soul because we have been saved and atoned for. I think it would be inappropriate for me to go farther in my sermon um, than this without addressing those of you that may not know Christ. Whether you are visitor, one of my middle schoolers I teach, one of the high schoolers, or a well-respected, long-standing member, if you know that you are not in Christ, then the law is still speaking curses against you to this day. And it ought to strike fear into your heart. As Hebrews 10 has taught us, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. No animal can take your place to satisfy the law. Probably weren't planning on that anyways, but there is no reprieve at all through any ritual. 
not through your own philanthropy, not through the mantra of do better, try harder. You are still at Sinai without Christ. And by coming to church and hearing the word of the Lord and hearing both the law and the gospel, you have heard a good thing. But that good thing can be your death sentence unless you come to know Christ. And if that has built tension within the heart of anyone in this room, then I don't have words of comfort for you other than the words of Christ, which are whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But now for those of you that have come to Christ and that you do know you you are in him, let us examine and begin to wonder where we are. All who know Christ are at Zion. Welcome to Zion. We have gathered at Zion today as the heavenly Jerusalem. Does that seem like an overstatement to you? Does that seem like over-realized eschatology? Uh, Our author doesn't think so, which means that God doesn't think so, which means, you ready? You shouldn't think so. Look at verse 22. It says that you have come. And again, as I said, there's a way that gets too fixated on grammar, but I think it really matters that you have come to Mount Zion. This is not one of the opportunities that the Bible has to promise a future reality. There's many passages that comfort us and encourage us and stir us up to good by telling us of heaven set before us. But here we are reminded that the new covenant, which we are in right now, is glorious, impressive, and encouraging. We don't live under those shadows. We have the full reality. We have everything that could be offered apart from heaven and earth uniting together, which is our promise for the future. And here now, we are worshiping even now with the angels. We're worshiping with angels that dance. They are excited to have us. Uh, Recall the words of Jesus that the angels rejoice when one sinner comes to Christ. And that's one of those phrases that can become imaginary Christianity to you, where the Bible is a collection of word pictures and metaphors. But that's not what we're told. We're told that when one sinner repents, it's not like the angels rejoice, it's that they do. And now, welcome to Zion, according to verse 22, we are here with an innumerable company of angels who are feasting and dancing and celebrating. So what are they celebrating? First Peter, 1, 2 would, or First Peter 2 would say that the angels long and marvel at the gospel. They love the story of redemption because for angels, they've never experienced it. There's no redemption or salvation or atonement. Uh, the angels that fell are gone forever. Those that have been loyal to Christ are with him forever. There is no experience of grace because they've never needed it. They will never know death or resurrection. They were blessed to witness uh, God at creation, and they worshiped him from then until now. They also got to see him take on the form of creation and come and save us. They marvel and wonder at a coming kingdom and the subjection of all things to Jesus, their ruler and Lord. The angels love to watch us and worship with us. On this topic of angels, let me take a moment to stir up your imagination, not about imaginary things, but the way that your heart and your mind looks at reality. Let me challenge you to obey the command of Romans 12 and renew your mind and dwell on something good. It may take a while for your heart to catch up to this and for your skepticism to die down, but it has everything to do with believing verse 22. If we were talking in shadows and pictures and abstract metaphors and the types of things that you had in the old covenant where everything is a picture, the story would be different. But we're in the new covenant where everything is real and it is better. So here's my proposition for you. We are joined by angels in worship. So one of the questions that God poses to Job is, 
whether or not he knew the morning stars sang and the angels worshipped him at the beginning of time, before the foundation of the earth. So perhaps it would be more accurate to say that we are the ones joining the angels because they've been worshiping God before us. Uh, Before we were here, they were composing music and singing songs to him before dry ground even emerged from the watery surface of the earth. Perhaps the reason that you think I've just said something that's off is that you cannot see them. And you might even be wondering, why are you wasting your time preaching about this? You may even think this is similar to uh, that foolishness of the medievals as they would ask, how many angels can dance on the pin head of a needle? That actually might be a good question. If angels occupied a, a temporal space, they were physical beings, maybe one of them could fit on the head of a needle, or maybe 20 or 30 or 50, depending on their size. Maybe thousands if you could shrink angels. But we must take the word of the Lord at face value. Angels are spirits like God is a spirit. They're non-physical, and sometimes they appear as physical. And yet we are told that we come to Zion with them to meet with them as they celebrate. So the plain truth of Scripture that is amplified by this text is that we dwell in the presence of angels when we worship. So yes, I, I, do I believe that they are with us now? Yes, I do, if that's what the text implies. And if you struggle with this point, wait till we get to the next point. If you struggle with the next point, wait till you, we get to the part where God came as a man and has saved you through the shedding of his blood. That's hard to believe for a natural man. We live in a supernatural world, and we were given this as one of the points to encourage us. So I'm going to spitball some verses to reinforce my point. Uh, Psalm 22.3 says that God is enthroned through our singing here on earth. Most people have interpreted that to say that our singing here on earth is being repeated by the angels one way or another in heaven, that he is glorified through our singing. So our corporate worship in the new covenant has ramifications for the eternal world for where Jesus is in heaven. I asked a friend earlier this week, the beginning of Hebrews says that angels are given to minister to God's elect. And I'm like, how in the world are angels ministering to me? Um, Because I've never had an angel encounter or experience. My friend said, well, maybe they're singing back what you sing, but in the right note. Um, And I think maybe they're onto something, at least for how angels minister to Tim Martin. Um, 1 Corinthians 11.10 so that wives ought to cover their heads because the angels are present at this time of worship when they prophesy. First Timothy 2 speaks of men as lifting their hands to testify before God. And I could go on and on that our worship has spiritual implications beyond the reverberation of words in our vocal box. The spiritual reality of new covenant worship is real and it is so big that all of heaven echoes when we join together to sing. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering. Now on to verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So the second encouraging reality that we have about being gathered at Zion, is that we are living with heirs of God. We're going to receive an encouragement about this truth for two categories of people. Those that are alive in body and spirit, and those that are alive in spirit only. The first category that we are given is the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. So who are the firstborn? There's a whole biblical tapestry imagery of this idea of being born, particularly being born first. And I have good news that if you know Jesus, you are probably a, you are a firstborn, regardless of whether or not you are the middle child, uh, something weird like the third out of seven or anything like that. You are the firstborn as declared in scripture. The firstborn, as an idea, or the idea of of being born, um, is spoken of in this context, in a similar context, in Psalm 87. 
If you really want to look, turn there and look at it with your own eyes, feel free to. We'll be there for a couple of minutes. Um, Psalm 87, in a few ways, is a backdrop for this verse right here. If a psalm connects Zion to also being called the city of God. And the city of God is a place where it is said, glorious things of him are spoken. And the good things that we speak about God are being spoken so loudly, so frequently, that they are known in, uh, let's see, what, what is the list here? Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. Those are the enemies of Israel. And they know the glorious things of the Lord. By the flesh, the, the chapter goes on to say, they are known as citizens of their nations. You look at someone from Babylon and you say, they were born there. They're Babylonian. However, all who come and worship in Zion, the promise is that it will be said, they are born there. The wording of the psalm in verse 6 is that God records and registers all who come to worship in his city. This registered in Zion language is more or less an exact quote for what we have as enrolled in heaven back in Hebrews. Under the old covenant, if you truly came to know and worship the one true God, you were welcome to come and live in the brick and mortar Zion. In the new covenant, everyone who is declared one of the elect enrolled in heaven is said to have been born there. Their true place of birth is greater and more real than their physical place of birth. And it's to be known as someone born from above born of heaven. So back in Hebrews 12.23, there's something else, I think, to being called firstborn. Uh, Just as the verses before, uh, up, I think, to 12.16, speak of Esau, who also was a firstborn, uh, but not according to the promise. So in this sense, the firstborn means heir. And so in spiritual Zion, The church, we're gathered as royal heirs, those who ought to inherit. And one day, we as royal heirs will inherit our birthrights. Just as we have received Christ, we will receive more when heaven and earth become one. What a glorious day that will be. And again, the text doesn't say that we are gathered like firstborn heirs, but that we are firstborn heirs gathered together as them, born of heaven. There's a note of personal application. Uh, Author Ray Ortland argues that getting this truth of being an heir is one of the key ways to fight against lust and pornography. Why bring that up? Last week, part of getting to this encouragement is fighting for holiness and purity as well as peace within the church. So this is his argument. First, we must come to see in our imaginations that the Bible teaches that all human beings have dignity by being human beings. They are image bearers of God. And in some sense, a royal dignity in the sense that we were meant to rule with God. But lust and adultery between Christians becomes more absurd when you see that you are sexually sinning against co-heirs at best. Every sexual relation between Christians outside of marriage is not only a violation of that person's dignity, but also their dignity as a royal heir of heaven with whom you will inherit eternity. And it's also a sense of spiritual incest as everyone who is not your wife in the intention of God's plan, who is a fellow Christian, is your sister or brother in Christ primarily. And that is the twisted nature of what happens when we look at something like you are an heir, you are a firstborn, and you let it become a metaphor, a simile, something detached from reality rather than it being who you really are. And that can help you to turn in disgust at the idea of breaking your marriage covenant or uh, going uh, beyond the bounds that God has set before marriage. So let that gross you out that we are heirs together and flee from lust against one another. We aren't done with verse 23 yet. There's a second category of people with whom we gather before God. And this is the one that I said is perhaps a little harder to even grasp in the idea that there are angels with us. 
As we have come to God, the judge of all, but that's not actually the focus, is on whom he has judged. And we're given a category of people he's judged. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The church comes in two categories, the church imperfect and the church perfected. Uh, the historical names for this are, in church history, the church militant, on the march, following the drumbeat of Christ their king, and the church at rest, those who have been told, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lay down your weapons, enjoy the rest prepared for you. The second category, the church at rest, is said to be the second group we gather with in this verse. So when I first read this and I started thinking about this, I came to one of my professors almost in a panic. I was like, Dr. Sykes, am I misreading this verse? Because I'm not a Catholic, I'm not Episcopalian, I'm not Orthodox, but it really seems like it is implying that some way I'm connected to the dead. And he confirmed with me that this is exactly what the verse is teaching. That there is ultimately one gospel and one church. And there is one head of the church, Jesus Christ, and there is one Holy Spirit, which binds all of us in love and unity, including those that have gone before us. Those of you touched by death, who have lost father, mother, grandfather, grandmother, brother, sister, child, cousin, or friend, take this as reality and let it be your comfort. That while you cannot talk to them and while they cannot hear you, that your voices are joined together in the worship of our God. And that the same Holy Spirit that is in you is still joined to them, promising them a resurrection. As we gather each Lord's Day, our passage teaches us here that three people are gathered at Zion. The joyful angels who have worshipped since the beginning of time, we, heirs of God, who are in the room right here, right now, and the church at rest, who, while apart from the body, worship God without tiring. So what do all these dancing angels and royal men and women gather to do? They gather to listen. They listen to blood that speaks. We are gathered this morning to listen to blood that speaks. Sprinkled blood, in fact. Sprinkling being a reference to that code at Mount Sinai where a temporary atonement was made through the sprinkling of the blood of animals. But we need better blood. Blood that our verse says is better than the blood of Abel. If Adam and Eve's sin against God caused spiritual death, then Cain's sin against Abel set the standard that even our sins against each other deserve punishment. And Abel's blood cried out for vengeance and justice. But we are gathered to listen to the blood of a man that speaks another word. First, let's refresh our imagination of where we're at. On one side, you have Mount Sinai, wreathed in flame and dark smoke and fire, and gathered at the foot of it, where God is offering to them a good thing that will kill them, apart from grace, is a desperate, fearful people trembling at the holy love of God. But then look at Mount Zion, a heavenly mountain. And at the foot of this mountain is the city of the living God, a city full of angels, a city full of royal heirs, the spirits of the righteous dead. And they are all gathered around beholding one thing, a dead lamb with flowing blood. Jesus, the sacrifice for sinners, is at the very foundation of this city. He is the cornerstone once rejected that became the foundation for eternity. And in the words of Charles Wesley, we are gathered around him to say to ourselves, Arise, my soul, arise and shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. And you, Christian, can claim that the blood of Jesus speaks for you. And as it speaks a better word than the covenant offered at Sinai. John Newton says of Jesus, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood and has brought us nigh to God. And then he draws applications in the next following verses. So let us love the Lord who bought us and pitied us as enemies, 
Let us sing through fierce temptation, though it threatens to bear down hard on us. Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. And in response, let us praise and join the chorus of saints enthroned on high. So those were his applications. What should yours be? Uh, Allow me for a moment to tell you of how the glorious reality of the new covenant, established by the blood of Jesus, can be an encouragement to you. First, if you find yourself dragging yourself to church every Sunday, wishing that you could be somewhere better, remind yourself there is nowhere better. The wrist is the room where the promises of the new covenant come to life. The blood of Jesus speaks, come, stay a while, meet your brothers and sisters, use your gifts, be a disciple. If you feel weighed down and exhausted by your work as perhaps a caretaker for an elderly loved one or friend, you feel like all of your hours outside of work are going to someone who's barely there, remember that Jesus sees your good work and loves it. He saved you for good works. And here on the Lord's day, come and be refreshed. The blood of Jesus says there is no better place for you to find rest. Last week, we were warned about two sins that are no doubt hidden in our congregation, fighting and quarreling and sexual sin. Remember that the sprinkled blood of Jesus has made a way to purity and has brought you into a family of brothers and sisters. The blood of Jesus says, flee sin, obtain grace, find peace in Christ. Do you want a clearer word for your conscience? Perhaps you're seeking an audible word or a dream, or maybe you would like to find comfort in a religion or a movement that's more physical, more ritualistic, more visible. Consider that Jesus is the final word of God. Every other fix is temporary. The blood of Jesus speaks and says, you are forgiven once and for all. Perhaps you do not know if you belong. You're plagued by doubt, a habitual sin or a past experience that makes you want to withdraw. That's the meaning of apostasy, to withdraw, to run away. Let me encourage you that there is no one like Jesus and no place like the church to find answers. There is nowhere else that can be said, you're at Zion. Everywhere else is under Sinai, under judgment. The blood of Jesus speaks to you, remain in the church where peace can be found. Perhaps you know you aren't a Christian. Consider that these royal heirs around you, these Christians around you, were not born Christians. They are the firstborn that 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 text speaks of, that were born elsewhere, but came to know Zion and were called sons of God. We were all rebels once. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. The blood of Jesus speaks for you that sinners can be saved. Uh, In doing some research for this sermon, I uh, came across two different uh, documentary films. And um, both by the same director, Werner Horzog. One is called The Fire Within, and it traces the tale of a man and a woman who were professional volcano chasers, and they died pursuing their love of volcanoes. The second film that he also directed was called Grizzly Man, about a man obsessed with grizzlies. Uh, Perhaps a little less surprisingly, he also died following his passion Every other passion we chase after usually ends like this. Uh, In the words of one of my uh, favorite authors, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And an outstanding reason for some choosing God or a spiritual type of worship, be it Jesus or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much Anything else you worship will eat you alive. Worship your own body and the beauty and sexual lure that you think you have, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will feel need ever more 
and you will need to feel more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. We're going to see next week that God is called an all-consuming fire, but he is the only thing that you can worship and not be destroyed. Jesus Christ's blood lays at the center of our reality, and local churches are where we gather at the center of God's plan for this creation. We no longer worship through shadowy metaphors, but we join angels in real worship, and we also join the dead in Christ, alive in heaven through song. We no longer live under a curse, but beside co-heirs in Christ and those that have gone before us. And we no longer listen to fearful words, but to the blood of Jesus, which speaks pardon and forgiveness. So welcome to Mount Zion. There is nothing more real than the grace that we have here. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the way that your word reveals this grace. Thank you that we, though we are in some ways deprived in our senses of being able to taste and experience and smell uh, quick fixes, temporary fixes, that we are given your son and we are given blood that is the perfect payment for every type of sin and every type of sinner if they would come to you, that they would be enrolled in Zion. Let this message dwell richly in the hearts of those that have heard it this morning. Let it quiet consciences that are off kilter. Let it convict sinners that do not know you. Let it convict sinners who are your children but running. And let it bring to life the truth that we are gathered at Mount Zion. We are at the city of the living God, the spiritual Jerusalem, as we await the future, as you make it reality. And one day, uh, though we do not yet see you face to face, we will awaken in your likeness, and we will see you. I pray this in the blessing of your word on this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.